open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, and we have taken a deep dive into the patriarchs. We have looked at the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were not perfect. The Bible's very clear and very honest as it records their lives, and that's good news for us. That's encouraging for us because we're not perfect either. <laughs> And we can see sin patterns in our own families. And as we trace the sin pattern in Jacob's family, we're going to see how not only does lying turn to deceit and scheming, but it even goes beyond that in his sons. So let's open up now and look at verses 1 and 2. He's coming back to Canaan. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim, and it means two camps. So what he was acknowledging was, I'm coming in with a camp of people, but I'm entering into God's camp. God is camped here. This is God's land that he has promised to us. And it's almost like he had a welcoming committee. Now, I can't imagine that he just casually mentions the angels of God greeted him when he walked into the promised land, and then we just press right on as though that was just a normal thing to happen. And yet we know from Scripture Angels are beings created by God, not in his image, but created by God. They are ministering spirits, the Bible tells us. Many times they're messengers from God. They are in his presence and they are sent to do his bidding. In fact, in Genesis 28, we know that when he was getting ready to go to Padanaram to get a wife, what happened? He had an encounter with angels and with the pre-incarnate Christ, and he saw the stairway to heaven, and God spoke to him and confirmed the covenant with him. But we also know in the New Testament, we learn a little bit more about angels, and we see angels working on behalf of the disciples when Peter is imprisoned. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is imprisoned along with, um, with James, and James is beheaded, and it is the night before he's to be brought forward for his execution. And the beautiful part of it is he's asleep. He's sound asleep because what had the disciples already done? They'd already died. It's like Paul. What do you do with somebody that's already dead? They've already died to themselves and they're willing to die. And Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He had seen the third heaven. He understood what was ahead for him. And so he longed to be with the Lord, and yet he felt such a responsibility for the people that he was with. And so Peter's sound asleep, chained to guards, and what happens? An angel comes in, has to shake him awake, and he looks up, and the chains fall off, and the doors open, and they leave, and he thinks he's dreaming until he gets outside the jail and realizes, whoa, wait a minute, the angel's gone, and I'm awakened. Hey, I'm outside the prison. And so he goes to the home where he knows the church will be praying. That's exactly what they were doing. So we see angels moving in answer to prayer. The church was praying fervently for him, and God blessed him and released him. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they angels not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 13.10 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. 
One time when Grant was a baby, I was driving from the seminary back to Lake Dallas, and I just happened to go. There was one route I could go where there weren't hardly any gas stations. I decided to go the other route just to do something different, which is not my normal. I am all about the most efficient way from A to B, and usually if I find it, I will go that way every single time. But for some reason, I decided to go the other way. Well, my car broke down. I'm driving down the interstate, and all of a sudden it's, you know, and it just stops. It's still rolling, but it stops. Fortunately, I wasn't far from an exit, so I exit off, and I stop. There's a, a, a red light right ahead, and there were a few cars in front of me, and I realized, okay, it's completely dead. I don't know what I'm going to do, and I look, and across the intersection, there's a gas station. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll unbuckle Grant out of his car seat, and I'll just walk to the gas station, see if they can, you know, help me out. So I'm turning around, and I'm trying to get him, and I, when I turn back around, there's a tow truck backing up to my car. I'm like, where did he come from? <laughs> like, there were cars in front of me at the red light, and now they're gone, and there's this tow truck backing up to my car. And so he, he walks up and says, are you having trouble? I said, my car's completely dead. And he said, well, I'll tow you over to that gas station. He said, I know the, the owner of the gas station. He's very honest. I'll take you over there. I think he'll be able to help you. And so he pulls me over there, and he gets the car in. And I just sit in the car. I'm holding Grant, and he pulls us over there. He goes in and gets the guy. The guy comes out. He's talking to me. He's going to look at my car, and then the guy was gone. You cannot tell me <laughs> I was not an angel <laughs> who protected us. And then I wonder how many times when I see people, maybe a homeless person or somebody just out somewhere and thinking, hmm, <laughs> who are you really? <laughs> be careful. You may be entertaining an angel and be unaware. Matthew 18.10 is where we get the concept of guardian angels for children. And Jesus had said, let the little children come unto me. In fact, he said, if you don't become like a little child, you're not even going to enter heaven. And in Matthew 18, verse 10, it says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. So their angels means they have angels assigned to them who continually behold the face of the father. So there are angels but they do God's bidding. They're obedient to him. We know those who rebelled and revolted with Satan are now demons. So as we move on into verse 3, it says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So he's coming back to the promised land. It's been 20 years. He's thinking, probably need to let Esau know this may not be good. <laughs> but I've got to give him a heads up because I don't want to be caught off guard, right? Are caught by surprise. He also commanded them, saying, Thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So what is he saying? I don't need anything you have. I am not coming to claim my inheritance. That thing that I swindled you out of, I've got everything I need. That's what he's letting Esau know. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and furthermore, he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Now that does not sound like a friendly visit to me. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels in two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then maybe the other company that is left will be able to escape. But then he turns to prayer. He devises a plan, but then he begins to pray. And look at the pattern of his prayer, because I think we can learn from this. He starts his prayer, first of all, by reminding God of a promise. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, 
O God, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. So he's reminding God of the promise God had given him. And he moves from that into a stance and a position of humility because he recognizes he is unworthy of that promise and blessing. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two companies. Deliver me. Now he moves into petition. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. And he goes back to a promise. For you said... I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother, and he sends them in droves. And if you, I don't know if you counted them up this week in your homework. I can't remember if we added them or I just added them on my own. But it's 550 if you don't include the... Um, milking camels and their colts. Those were not numbered. <laughs> 550, that's a lot of animals. And yet he obviously had a whole lot left. So he's sending them in waves. And what is he telling them to do? These come from your servant. This is a gift to you from your servant, Jacob. So what is he saying to him? I'm not coming to lord it over you. I'm not coming to claim anything. I am really coming in humility. So he sends them all to Esau. And then he takes his family across, the, camp, across the, uh, the brook, and he is left alone. And in verse 24, it tells us that a man wrestled with him until daybreak. What we're going to see here is that he's wrestling all night long with the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Christ is wrestling with him, and at first, he's striving and struggling against him. But when Christ touches his hip and wounds him, it breaks him, and he goes from striving and struggling to clinging. And what does he say? I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not going to let go. I think that's what it means in the New Testament when it says ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. We seek, we ask, we knock, and we hold on until God answers. Sometimes he answers the way we want him to, what we're clinging to him for. Sometimes he says, I have a different answer than the one you're asking for, but in the long run, it will be best. It will be what is best for you. It will be best for what is in this circumstance. It will be best for the person that you're praying for. And sometimes that's very hard for us to accept because we are so limited. As we talked about last time, I was teaching you how God's omniscience <laughs> is huge and ours is a pinpoint so we can't begin to comprehend all that he knows and all that he's doing and all that he's preparing. And, and sometimes when we pray for loved ones that we're wanting to be healed and God says, no, I'm taking them home. It's time for their reward. That's what we don't understand. We're so bound by the temporal that we don't get. Yes, the separation is painful, but oh, the joy, the glory, the freedom, the wholeness that they are experiencing. They're more alive than any of us more alive than we can even begin to wrap our minds around. And so we need to cling to him and trust him. 
Stephen Dempster in his book said, two birth scenes frame Jacob's life. The struggle with Esau in the darkness of the womb when he is born Jacob, and the struggle with God in the darkness of the Jabbok River when he is reborn Israel. And Israel actually means God struggles or God commands. And just as the sinew shrank and was not removed, it's like it tightened up and his hip was no longer functioning properly. Just like it tightened up, so our flesh is not removed after we're saved. There'll still be a battle between our flesh and spirit. It's so easy for us to resort to reacting in the flesh instead of responding in the spirit. Our natural man walks in fear, scheming, and self-protection. Arthur Pink, in his commentary, said, Jacob had contended for the birthright and succeeded. He had contended for the blessing and succeeded. He had contended with Laban and succeeded. He had contended with men and succeeded. Now he contended with God, the wrestler, and fails. Hence, his name was changed to Israel, God commands, to teach him the greatly needed lesson of dependence upon God. And he went on to say, that which hinders us in our growth in grace is not so much our spiritual weakness as it is confidence in our natural strength. Ouch. We desire to be self-sufficient. We don't want to be dependent on anyone. But what we have to come to grips with is that literally, as John 15 says, what Jesus told the disciples just before he left them, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing apart from him. We can do nothing of eternal value. We can do nothing in the power of the Holy Spirit until we die to our flesh so that his spirit takes over. I don't want to depend on what Donna can do. I know I am not able. But I praise the Lord that he is able. So consequently, I don't have to be because he is able. And God then blesses him. Look at verse 29. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now, can you even imagine what he must have looked like? And I can remember Ron Dunn, the great, just a phenomenal pastor and teacher of the spirit-filled life back in the 80s and 90s. Ron Dunn preached a message one time on this passage of of Scripture in Jacob's struggle with God. And he said, can you imagine what he must have looked like the next morning? Because he struggled all night long. So we're talking like a wrestling match in the dirt. They're rolling around. They're wrestling. Probably his clothes were torn. They're dirty. He's limping. His hair's probably crazy. And he walks across the stream to his family the next morning. And they go, what happened to you? He goes, I've been blessed. Sometimes God's blessing does not look like what we anticipated, does it? And yet he was changed. He looked different. He walked different. He was different. Some of his old ways were still going to be there for a while because it takes a little while for our flesh to fully die. But we're going to see he becomes a completely different man. And given the name Israel, the name that would be the name of the descendants that God had promised them that would outnumber the stars in the sky. So now we're ready for the reconciliation with Esau. And what we're going to see happened during his night of struggle, Jacob's not the only one who was changed. 
Look at verse uh, chapter 33, number one. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. I'm telling you, there's got to be some major, major sibling upset over <laughs> He's still, he's still favoring Joseph. But he himself passed on ahead of them. Okay, what do we see happening? We thought first he's going to send all of them and he's going to hang out in the back, right? Not now. What does he do? He lines them all up and he goes first to meet Esau. He passed ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. God didn't just change Jacob's heart that night. God changed Esau's heart. He took the anger, the hatred, the desire to murder away from Esau, and he changed his heart, and he gave him a heart of compassion and love for his brother, and they literally fell into each other's arms after 20 years, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Likewise, Leah came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I've met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's calling Esau Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And they kind of go back and forth. And then finally Esau says he'll take it. And then what does he say? Let me travel with you. And Jacob says, no. And truly, the animals and the children would not be able to keep pace with he and his 400 men. So he says, go on back. And he says, well, I'll leave some people with you just for your protection to be with you as you travel. And he said, no, 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 really, it's fine. Just let us travel at our own leisure. And then in verse 14, he says... Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir, which is where Esau was living. Now, does Jacob go to Seir? No. So we are still seeing some of his fleshly ways. Now, we don't know if maybe he kind of intended to go, but he doesn't follow through and do what he said he would do, or if he never even intended to go. And he was just saying that to Esau so they could travel at their own pace and go where they wanted to go. But he does not go, and he does not go back to Bethel either. He compromises. And it's going to profoundly impact his family because partial obedience is disobedience. In Genesis 28, 18 through 22, when God revealed himself to him and he had that vision of the stairway to heaven and God blessed him, Jacob made a vow to God. And it says, so Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. We're going to see we don't see him doing this. In fact, he stops in Succoth 
And he built some shelter for his animals and a house. We don't know how long he's there. Then eventually he ends up at Shechem. And the language for Shechem sounds very reminiscent of Lot, who pitched his tent toward Sodom because he pitches his tent toward Shechem. And it's going to be a city that gets his family in trouble. What happens because he compromised and didn't go back to Bethel and fulfill the vow that he had made to God. Well, Dinah, you know, I don't, evidently he had other daughters, but I don't know. She was wanting to see what the other, you know, young women in the city were doing. And so she goes to be with the young women and Shechem, the prince, sees her. He takes her forcibly, forces himself on her, but then he falls in love with her. He wants her as a wife. And so they come making a promise, hey, if you will allow us to intermarry, if Shechem can have your daughter, we will pray a pay a bride price. We, you know, you can live with us. We can intermarry with each other. It'll be great. And so Simeon and Levi have a plan and they come up with a scheme and they say, oh, there's no way we could intermarry with you unless you allow your, your males all to be circumcised. And that is, you know, the requirement that we have. And that's the only way we could intermarry with you. And so Hamor and Shechem must've had a lot of influence on that city because I cannot even imagine them persuading all of those men to go through with that. But they did. And they went back and told them, hey, we can have their daughters, they can have our daughters, we can intermarry, and everything that is theirs will be ours. So what are they looking at? His wealth. They were looking at his herds, and they were thinking, oh, all of that can be ours. Okay, we'll do it. And on the third day, when they were in pain, what does Simeon and Levi do? They come into the city, and they systematically murder every male in the city, loot their goods, and bring back women and children. And when Judah, Jacob finds out what happens, he doesn't say anything until the boys get in. And when they hear well, what happened to Dinah, they were so upset. And that's why Simeon and Levi went after him. And so then he, when Jacob finds out what they've done, what does he say? Oh no, we're going to be odious in the sight of all the people around us. Somebody's going to come after us and they're going to destroy us. He was not concerned that all these men had just been murdered. He was concerned that the people around him were going to seek revenge and come after them and kill them. And so finally he realizes, I need to get things right with God. I need to go back to Bethel. But before we do, I need you to put away your idols. And I'm like, what? What? What are they doing with idols? Why do they have idols? What in the world are they doing with idols? And he tells his, he tells his people, what does he say? Put away your idols. Chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and do all her with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which are in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Now, the earrings must have been some kind of like good luck charms that had something to do with some of their pagan idols. That's why they had to take those off. They got rid of the pagan idols. He buries them under an oak tree. But I'm still going, what in the world are you doing with pagan idols? Why? I don't know if Rachel still had her father's that she had stolen, but they had pagan idols that they had to get rid of. Why? Because they were going back to the house of God. They were going back where God had revealed himself to him. And he wanted them to be clean. And you know, as believers, we're responsible for our homes and families. And we're not to have any idols that would be allowed to turn the hearts of our family 
away from the Lord. Jacob spiritually cleansed his family before moving on to Bethel, the house of God. Just as you physically clean your home, I would encourage you to spiritually clean it as well. And I know when our children especially were in our home, and I would be cleaning house and doing things, maybe cleaning up their rooms or stripping beds or whatever it may be. I used that time to pray over their rooms, to pray over our home, and to spiritually clean it while I was physically cleaning it. It gave great significance to something that can be really mundane. <laughs> but I would pray for them. I would pray over their room. I would bless the atmosphere of our home. I would quote scripture. I would pray, play praise music. Why? I was spiritually cleansing our home. Your kids can be exposed to things when they're out in the world, when they're at school, things that they bring back into their home. We, don't, we didn't allow things to come into our home that didn't honor Christ. Just recently, um, I was talking to my daughter, and she was helping do something for another family, and she was talking about their son and how he had these horrific posters on the wall in his room. And she said, I can't believe his parents allow him to do that. But they're kind of like, well, you know, he's a teenager. We can't really do anything about it. And she's like, you don't know my dad. <laughs> My dad would have said, get that stuff, this is my house, get that stuff off that wall, that is not, not gonna, that you're in my room, that is my room, and you're not going to put anything that dishonors the Lord in my house, this is my house, I pay for this house, and it would be the same thing for their phone or their car or anything else that we paid for, it doesn't belong to them, and so they have to use it to honor the Lord, we've got to be the parents, I spoke at uh, mom's uh, event luncheon recently for ECS, and so enjoyed it, but I really thought when I left, I probably came across two heart because I'm just like over it. You know, it's like you got to be the parent. You have to be the parent. If you will be the parent while you're parenting, you can be their friend when they're grown. But it is not your job to be their friend when they're in your home. It is your job to parent. It is your job to lead by example. It is your job to point them to Christ. It is your job to walk blamelessly with the Lord, to live a holy life, to value the things that God values, to talk about the things that God values, because your children know what matters to you, what's important to you, by what you talk about, how you spend your time, and how you spend your money. And what are you saying about your body? Are you positive or negative about your body image? Because your children hear that and they're going to pick that up. They become who we are, not just what we want them to be or what we say we want them to be. They become who we are. We reproduce who we are and we're passing on sin patterns just like Jacob did. You see how the lying and scheming and deception turned into murder? Deceiving and murdering when Simeon and Levi? And then we're going to say... You know already what happens to Joseph, their own brother. Not just pagan men in a city, but their own brother. We have to deal with those things. And then after they leave there, he comes to Bethel, he builds an altar, and there Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. So we had said before, he never saw Rebecca again when she, they concocted this little scheme and he was sent to get a wife. She never called for him. So we don't know when she died. I don't know exactly when Deborah came to stay with them, but evidently when he came back into the promised land, she came to stay with them as well. She dies and then God appears to him there and blesses him once again. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel, and God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. 
But he's going to have some more tragedy because what do we know happens right after this as they're traveling before they get to Bethlehem? Rachel's going to die in childbirth. She gives birth to Benjamin, but she dies in childbirth. And then Reuben disgraces Jacob in verse 22. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. We don't see a whole lot happen right here, but at the end of his life, when he's giving the blessing just before he dies, he curses Reuben, and Reuben actually loses the status and position of the firstborn because of what he did. And then we have Isaac's death. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. The guy that was going to die was still alive. (laughs) And Rebecca, who thought she had all the time in the world, was not. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. What a gift God gave him to have both of his boys reconciled and there at his death and there to bury him. And then chapter 36 um, goes into Esau's genealogy. It gives us, we got, had Jacob's genealogy earlier with his 12 sons, and then we get Esau's genealogy. And what had God told Rebecca, when she was pregnant with the twins, there are two nations in your womb, but the older will serve the younger. And we see God fulfill that. You know, we have a very special friend of the ministry, one of our own, Christy Hall, who did the cover for The Blessing. Well, she has just recently published a book of her paintings. It has just come out, and I think our bookstore will carry them as well, Um, but I think you can get them on Amazon also, but it's called The Offering, Colors of Eternal Truth, and it is a beautiful book. And in 21, what the Lord prompted her to do as she was reading through the one-year Bible was to paint a scripture, basically a picture that depicted a scripture that she read that week. And so at first she was excited about it. And she said, then she started thinking, Lord, that's 52 paintings. That's like one every week. I don't know that I can do this. But she said it was absolutely amazing how every week there would be a scripture that just jumped out at her and the Lord would use it and it would just come to life for her through color. Well, the cover is the picture she painted the week that she did a painting about Jacob's struggle with the pre-incarnate Christ. And it's entitled, Hold On. Listen to this. There's a devotional thought with each one of the pictures. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. I bet Jacob never fully forgot that place. The hills, the terrain, the colors, the breeze, the smell and the air, the place where he wrestled with God, refused to let go, and got a brand new name. What are you holding on to God for? Are you weary from praying, tired of asking? I truly believe God loves it when we hold on in persistent faith. May I encourage you to, this is all caps, just keep holding on. Keep praying Keep asking. Then when he shows up and does only what he can do, you will remember the place, the bursting of your heart, the tears that cry in utter praise. He is worthy, able, and willing. Keep holding on.
Do not give up, sweet friend. Our God is faithful, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Keep holding on.